Father, your spirit is the life that we have from the living God. And we acknowledge that we fill our lives with so many things that that supplant the power of the Spirit of God and the presence of God. And I pray, God, that as we worship you today and we are in your presence, not just in theory but in reality, that we would allow your Holy Spirit to fill us. And as you fill us with your Spirit, that your presence would flow in and through us and our lives would be changed. We acknowledge that we are powerless to change ourselves. But as we open ourselves to your spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, as we know you through Jesus Christ, that you can transform our lives and transform our very world, our families, our, our workplaces, everywhere we are. And I pray, Lord, today that you would pour your spirit out a fresh wind of your spirit in all of our lives today. And I pray that as we look at your word, your living word, this is not just a history book or a, a book of theology. This is a living word of God. And I pray that as we look at the living word of God, nothing in me would get in the way of what you want to say to us today, that we also would be changed, not just by your, our worship, but by your word. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please, please. By the way, I just want to make a comment. We put an outline and notes that you can take notes on in every program every week of some sort. Now, there are some people, they wouldn't feel like they've been to church if they didn't take notes. Okay, they liked, love taking notes. They learned that way. Other people like the audio experience. They don't want to look at notes. They don't want, and that's fine. So don't feel like just, we provide that as a help to learn and to help to remember. Uh, and we hope you remember. Some people remember bet, best by audio instead of writing. And so, so just, just so you know that. I, I said that once a while ago, and I don't remember when I said that. But just want to make sure you feel free uh, to take notes or not. Whatever, whatever learning um, uh, experience you have that works the best. An eight-year-old boy was asked at Sunday dinner by his parents what he had learned at Sunday school that morning. And he said, the teacher told us about Moses and his escape from Egypt. He said, Moses organized his people into resistance groups, and they planned for months, and finally they broke loose and escaped. They drove their Humvees and tanks and personnel carriers, everything while the infantry double-timed it behind. Pharaoh got his army on the chase, and they shot at him with scud missiles, chased him through the desert with choppers, and shot at him with MiG fighters. When Moses and his people reached the Red Sea, they were trapped. They thought they were finished. There was water in front of them, and the Egyptians were behind him. But the Corps of Engineers came to the rescue, built a pontoon bridge over the Red Sea, and the Israelites crossed over just in time. Then as Pharaoh's army was crossing over after them, Moses blew up the bridge and the whole Egyptian army drowned. Great story, huh? The boy's parents, who were more than just a little concerned about their son's overactive imagination, asked, are you sure that's the way your teacher told the story? 
He said, well, not exactly, but if I told you the way he told it, you'd never believe it. The crossing of the Red Sea, a story beyond belief, a story of human emotion, high drama, exciting events, and a climactic conclusion. And it's believable only if you believe in an all-powerful God, a God that does what he chooses with his creation. There have been many attempts to explain the crossing of the Red Sea in naturalistic terms. Like, for instance, the Red Sea was only six inches deep when and where they crossed. But then how did the entire Egyptian army drown in six inches of water? There are all kinds of attempts to explain this. Any way you slice it, if we are to believe the books of Genesis and Exodus, the God who's the God of creation, the God who intervened and intervenes in nature, He sent plagues, and he preserved the Israelites from death by lamb's blood on a doorpost. We looked at that a couple weeks ago at the Passover. How does that work? Is it any stretch of the imagination that a God can do what he pleases with his creation, can do all of that? Now, regardless of the apologetic side or defense of scriptures, I want to see what we can learn about God in this story. What can we learn about God? Four basic lessons about who God is and what God does. Who God is and what he does. And we apply it to the people in the story in the book of Exodus, but we discover also, just like all of Scripture, it's very relevant for us today. Today. We all face Red Seas or Red Sea obstacles, and we're all being pursued by someone or something. We're all in that same situation. And we all have a God who can move us forward despite the obstacles. So today we're going to look at moveon.god. It's not a website. It's just moveon.god. And I'd like us to turn to Exodus, the 13th chapter. Exodus 13. We're very familiar with most of this story, but I really want to read to refresh our memory. Uh, Exodus 13. It's on page 54 if you want to follow in the Bible in the rack in front of you. It'll also be on the projection. Exodus 13. We're going to start with verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though it was shorter. For God said if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt armed for battle. Verse 21, by the day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night a pillar of fire to give them light, so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. Chapter 14, verse 1, then the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pihiroth between Migdal and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea directly opposite Baal Zephon. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready. 
took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and troops, pursued the Israelites, overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pahirath, opposite Baal Zephon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone? Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, will never, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Down to verse 19. Then the angel of God who had been traveling in front of Israel's army withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved in front and stood behind, behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other. So neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. And then we find when the Egyptians tried to cross over, God took it down, and it says in verse 31, and when the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. When we read stories like this, we can say one of two things. We can either say, oh, they're just like us, which brings encouragement. Or we can say, we're just like them, which brings despair. <laughs> Positive or negative, depending on how you want to look at it. But I want us to look today and see what we can learn about God in this very familiar story that we have before us. Number one, God understands. God understands we are. God understands we are, first of all, fearful. Fearful. God knows we're human. And as human beings, the Israelites, for the most part, were fearful. They were fearful. To be human, to be human is to know fear. The Israelites would not only would have been fearful of the warlike Philistines, the shortest route to the promised land was through Philistine territory. God said, no, they'll, they'll, they'll get afraid and come back. But they were terrified when they saw Pharaoh's army coming after them. Fear. Now, fear plays havoc all of our lives. Fear. The phone rings in the middle of the night. We get a letter from the IRS. We fear for our kids or our grandkids. We have fear of failure. We fear the unknown. There, if, if you were to name, I don't know how many actual phobias there are, but there are fears of all kinds that we experience as human beings, different types of fears. Now, those are irrational fears. We deal with rational fears most of the time. Some fear marriage because divorce is rampant. Some fear divorce because divorce is rampant. There was an article in a, in a local newspaper that says divorce causes climate change. 
What? Yeah, it, it, because if you're divorced, you consume more power, producing more carbon, because you're heating and cooling two homes instead of one. Then you have to commute to share the children. So if there's no other reason to stay together in your marriage, do it for the sake of the environment. That was the postulation that they had. Yeah, divorce causes global warming or climate change. So fear of global warming or climate change. Of course, they've been saying that for, I remember the, it was in 1970s, it was global cooling. And uh, New York City was going to be covered with ice in, in a short period of time. Then it didn't work out. So 20 years later, they came up with global warming. And now it's just climate change. Climate, yeah, it does. It, it does change. But some people are paranoid of climate change. Fear. Maybe you're afraid of financial ruin. We're, we're dealing right now with, with inflation at the highest rate we've experienced in most of our lifetimes. Maybe it's the fear of the death of a loved one. A health crisis that we just can't deal with. Fear. The fear factor. All of us experience what they experienced. It's called fear. Different, different faces and all those fears. The French philosopher Montaigne said this. My life has been full of terrible misfortunes, most of which have never happened. Fear. Is there a vice for fear? Yeah, just turn off the news and read the word. That's, that's my advice. Um, I try, I don't always succeed, I try to spend time in the word before I look at the news every morning. Sometimes it's too uh, uh, hard to do that, but that's what I try. What kind, of, what kind of fears do you have? Maybe you just fear bad news. Maybe you just fear bad news. Occasionally, I would go through phases of fear for my family, depending on what stage our children were in, you know. And, you know, when they're infants, you would, I would go into the, into the bedroom and make sure they're breathing, okay. Uh, we're afraid of something's going to happen. Um, then they turn five, and they, or they start walking, and they go out in the, out in the traffic. Then they get teenagers. You know, you, you name it. We have, and we have fear of bad news. We're going to get this bad news. Are my kids okay? What about Judy? Is she doing okay? There's a, there's a psalm, and you probably want to read the whole thing, Psalm 112, 7, that says, you follow righteousness and follow God, it says, he will have no fear of bad news. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. Man, did I hang on to that. said, God, I just don't want to have fear of bad news because we, we're surrounded by all kinds of things and we hear about all these tragedies that happen to everybody else and, and school shootings and all kinds of things. And so we fear bad news. He said, you need to not fear bad news. Psalm 56, 3 to 4 says, when I am afraid, which assumes you are afraid, that's okay. You are, when I am afraid, I will trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust. I will not be afraid. What can mortal man do to me? God understands. We are all fearful. Okay? You're in good company. You're in good company. We're all fearful. Second, God understands that we are forgetful. Forgetful. I'm not talking about discovering that you put your car keys in the fridge or something. Not, not that kind of a thing. We just, we just forget things. How soon we forget. The Israelites 
had just in, in a short period of time had seen the incredible hand of God. They had seen the plagues come on all their enemies. They had experienced the Passover, which was deliverance from death. They had plundered the Egyptians. We don't have time to look into it, but basically they went to the Egyptians and they were being given all kinds of gold, silver, clothing, etc. in Exodus 12. All these incredible things, but that was so five minutes ago. Do we forget? Do we, do we forget? God saved your marriage and now you forget about that when you face challenges today. God provided your finances last time, but we forget and we worry now. And God keeps changing it up. He does. The Israelites experienced one set of plagues. Wow, God can do that. Then the Passover and just one Red Sea crossing, and then they encounter new obstacles and new challenges. Why does God keep changing it up for us? New obstacles keeps changing. That's why God created children. It changes everything. All of a sudden, it's crazy. Grandchildren, we need to experience God in our changes. We say, God delivered me last time. I guess he's never going to do anything for me the rest of my life. <laughs> Have you never said that? I guess he saved me last. I guess he's, he's out of blessings for me. I'm doomed. We forget what God has done in the past. We say, now God's going to drop me. You know, he's going to take care of me all the way until I hit 31 or until I hit 61 or until I get to retire. He's going to take care of me, but when I get to a certain age, he's going to drop me flat. Are you kidding me? But we, why do we, we forget? We forget. God doesn't. God doesn't forget. Move on, move on. Thirdly, after fearful and forgetful, God understands we are faithless, faithless. God knows if we're focused on fear and forget, then we become faithless, faithless. In, in chapter 14, it says the Israelites were terrified by the army. And the people cried out to the Lord, they wanted to go back to Egypt. Now, one of the consistent sins on the part of the Israelites was the loss of faith because they always wanted to go back to Egypt. You know, they, you know this, this thing, I always want to go back. God's not the God of going back. God is the God of moving on. And, but they always wanted to go to Egypt. Always wanted to go to Egypt. So they were murmuring against Moses and murmuring against God. How did you know the Israelites were murmuring? Because their lips were moving. They were murmuring, complaining. One of the biggest sins all throughout the book of Exodus is complaining and murmuring against God, against Moses. And we must resist the temptation to go back. Our God is a God of forward momentum, a God of move on, move on, go forward. The Israelites demonstrated faithfulness by blaming Moses. And it's, it's ironic. They say, was it because there are not enough graves in Egypt? Well, you got the pyramids. You got all these. You know, it's kind of ironic. They got these incredible graves, burial sites and whatever. The emphasis of tombs in Egypt, the pyramids. Their faith is because there weren't enough tombs in Egypt that you brought us out here to die. Faithless. Fourthly, God understands that when we are in a tough situation, we can also become accusatory, accusatory. 
we like to find someone to blame. And Moses was the scapegoat, of course. Moses was. So who do we blame? Who, who do we tend to blame? Out of fear, out of forgetting, out of faithlessness comes accusation, finding someone to blame. Now, it's, it's human nature. It is human nature. When we read about the very first humans, Adam and Eve, Adam in the Garden of Eden found someone to blame. There were only, there was only, there were only two people. <laughs> only two people at this point in time. And Adam sinned. And God confronted him. What does he do? He says, the woman you gave me made me eat it. <laughs> okay. So he blamed God and he blamed Eve. And of course, Eve blamed the devil. The devil made me do it. Blamed the devil. And since that time, the die is cast. It's like this human nature of blaming, shifting the blame. And just saying, I want to, we want to accuse somebody else. We don't want to take responsibility for that. We want to accuse somebody else. And God says, get over it. Get over it. He says, move on. He says, go forward. And finally, what do we find here? Backed into the corner between the rock and hard place, or literally an army and a sea, God understands that, letter E, we are obedient when desperate. <laughs> We are obedient when desperate. In desperation, with no way to turn, Israel finally obeys God through Moses. See, God understands us. God knows we're human. God places us in predicaments beyond what we're able to handle because he knows that sometimes, not always, but sometimes the only time we obey God is when we're desperate, when there's no other thing to do. Maybe you're not like that. I, I tend to be like that. In a predicament, then we o obey God. Sometimes sooner, sometimes later, we say, okay, okay, God, I'll go forward. I'll go forward. So what do, what do we discover here? First of all, about God, God understands, okay? Something incredibly comforting about the fact that we have a God who understands. He understands. Secondly, second lesson we learn about God is God is there. God is there. The presence of God. God was with Israel at all times. He didn't leave them. In fact, God led them into this hard place. Why? So that he could accomplish his purposes. God was there in the presence. He was leading them into that. Say, God, why would you do that? We ask God that sometimes. Twice Pharaoh said, uh, twice God says, I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. I am the Lord. Now the escape route that Israel took was great if you wanted to have a day at the beach. This was not the greatest escape route. Why did God lead them? He led them this exact route. The Red Sea in front, the desert and mountains on two sides, and Pharaoh's army behind him. And God was there. God was there. No matter what your challenge, God is there. And Pharaoh got up the day after Israel left, and he found something. He said, we had no slaves. No slaves. His wife probably said, your slaves are gone. 
Now you have to wash the dishes and take out the trash. All of a sudden, they had no services of the slaves. So Pharaoh said, we're going we're gonna to do something. He jumps on his chariot, chases after them. And in the predicament, hopelessly trapped, God was there. Now, God's presence was with Israel. I'd, I'd kind of like it this way if, it was, if he could do this for us. The, the pillar of fire and the pillar of smoke, you'd say, you know, that would be awesome. That's what he did. Pillar of smoke in the daytime, pillar of fire at nighttime. And God's presence did three things for them and three things for us. He does three. His presence does at least three things for us. First of all, God is there to lead us. God, God said, follow me. I'll show you the right direction, the right path, the way to escape, the way to the promised land. And God's presence is with us in reality to give us direction, to show us the path so we can move on. God's presence is there to lead us. We also find that God's presence is also there to give us light, to give us light. At night when it was dark, the light illuminated their path, said this is where you're to go. We, we don't experience darkness very often. I mean, I'm talking total darkness. We live about three miles out of town, and at night, it can be totally pitch black, but we can see the orb of lights emanating over Eau Claire. There's, there's light. There's light somewhere. There's almost, you have to go a long ways out before you see no light at all. Total darkness. And if you experience total darkness, it, it can be rather frightening. Now, when I was in college, my, my older brother owned the typical college car. College car. When I say that, sometimes things would just quit working without warning. How many of you ever had a car like that in college or after? Yeah, okay, good. I think I had two of them over my college career. Car, it, just, it just suddenly quits. One night, he and I were driving through the country on a highway about 60 miles an hour when all of a sudden, the headlights went out. It just blacked out. There's nobody else on the road, fortunately. Just, you know, we're driving along, having a good time, and all of a sudden, boom, no lights. Completely blackness. There was no moon. There was nothing. We could see nothing. Very, very unnerving. Now, the fortunate thing is that we were driving across eastern North Dakota. And if you've driven across eastern North Dakota, you know there are no curves, there's no hills, it's just a road. And so you could, we probably could have done it for a long time, but it, they came back on eventually. But I will never forget the unnerving experience of, it, of just blackness and not knowing. 60 miles an hour, you can't see anything. I had a new appreciation for, for light. Well, we experience, as, as a people, we experience those kinds of circumstances, maybe not physically or literally, but figuratively. Figuratively. It's as if the lights go out and we just can't see. We don't know where to go. We've lost our sense of orientation. We don't know if we're safe. We don't know for how fast. We don't know anything. We're just deprived of light because we're sitting in dark. And we panic. And at times like that in our lives personally, it's God's presence that brings light. It's his presence that brings us the light. In Psalm 119, 105, it says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Sometimes we want something dramatic like a pillar of fire, a sign, something. And God says, 
It's all there in front of you. It's called the Word. It's called the Bible, the Word of God. Read my Word. If you want to move in the right direction, if you want perspective, if you want all of the things that you need from light, read my Word. God's Word, under the guidance of God's Holy Spirit, and our darkness goes away. That's God's presence in our life that we choose to partake of. Then we will know where to go and how to move. The presence of God, thirdly, is there to protect us, to protect us. The pillar of cloud and the fire protected Israel from Pharaoh's army. How many times has God, God's presence protected you? We probably will never know. We'll probably never know because God has protected us at times we have no clue. No clue. Sometimes we do. A near mishap, a near accident, something. We say, wow, God protected me on that one. We have no clue. But his presence will protect us. That's who God is. And in our Red Sea situation, God will actually speak to us too. He speaks to us. He'll speak to us. In, verse, in number three, it says, God tells us. God tells us, do not fear. God told them and he tells us, letter A, do not fear. Do not be afraid. Since God is with them and with us in our predicament, he can say to us, do not fear or stop fearing. Stop fearing. God had already shown him his power and his protecting power was unfolding before their eyes, moment by moment. And he says, don't fear. It's kind of like you're flying in an airplane and all of a sudden you start feeling some bumps and you go, oh no, turbulence. I, how many of you hate turbulence? <laughs> I like smooth flights. Yeah, turbulence. It's, it's really frightening. I remember once I was flying from New York to Minneapolis. I was trying to get back to this area and they tried three times. I don't know what was in their mind. There were these huge thunderstorms coming in three times to get over them and they finally turned around and went back to LaGuardia. And I'm just going, why don't we just see? It just, it was frightening. But then the pilot comes on and says, do not fear. Fasten your seatbelt. I have everything under control. And you go, okay, that helps a little. Okay, helps a little. But fear, when someone says, do not fear, do not be afraid. Then he says, stand firm. Stand firm. Which means wait for God. Wait. Wait for God. Now, time and again, I watch football games where you have an inexperienced running back that keeps running into the backs of his blockers. You see that? You go, wait, stop. No, no, oh, come on. You can't do that. They keep running into their blockers. And contrast that with the experienced running back that's patient and smart, waits for the blockers to clear the path, and then goes through the hole. Does everybody here watch football? Make it, just want to make sure. Is it, does it happen in hockey too? Oh, never mind. Okay. Patient. Patience and standing firm. Waiting. We need to stand firm and wait on God and look for his solution. Most of us tend to be proactive. We try to create the solution. God says, wait. Wait. It takes patience. It's God's timing. And then letter C, be still. Be still. Maxie Dunham, one of the writers, 
says this, that one of the most difficult calls in our lives, because most of us want to act, is waiting. So we don't want to wait. I've discovered that it's only in being still, in waiting for a while, that I gain the perspective I need before taking action in whatever trying circumstance I find myself. Be still. Wait. We're so bad at waiting. All of us are. Do not fear. Stand firm. He says, be still. Be still. Verse 14, he said, the Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still. Wow. Wow. And then one of my favorite verses, Psalm 4610. Be still and know that I am God. Be still. Another version, let go and relax and know that I am God. The Lord will fight for you while you keep still or silent. It's a recurring theme all through the book of Exodus. Murmuring, complaining, doubting God. And he says, be still, be quiet, don't murmur, don't complain, don't confess the negative. There is a time to wait, to wait. And then there's a time to move, to move. Letter D, move on. Verse 15, God says to them, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Okay, so they waited, they were still, they waited for God. Now he says, okay, let's go. Time to move. When we're in the presence of God, we can only be in two positions, literally. Two positions, on our knees, waiting, or on our feet, moving. On our knees, waiting, or on our feet, moving. There's prayer, and there's action. Got to have them both. Got to have them both. Prayer and action. One writer says, prayer is essential. Prayer is good. But unless we rise from our knees to obediently follow the Lord, prayer is a farce. Ah, there's a time for action. Prayer, yes, we must pray. We must move forward. In the face of this, immovable object, the Red Sea, the people go forward. And it was as they took action, as they moved forward, as they obeyed God, God moved. See, action is an evidence of faith. Move on, go forward, and take action. And as we, by faith, move on and take action, God does his thing. And what is that thing? What was that thing then? What is it for us? God fights for us. God fights for us. 13. Do not be afraid. Stand firm. You will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. The battle is always God's. And no matter what Red Sea obstacles in front of you today, God will fight for you. God understands God is there. God will speak to you. God will fight for you. Don't try to go back. Move on. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you give us the, a realistic picture of what it's like 
that these people were not superheroes or supernatural in any way. They were people who had fears and, and they needed a reassurance, they needed a direction, they needed protection, all of those things from you. We're in, we're in good company. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would encourage us today as we all experience these kinds of obstacles. And Lord, no matter where people are at today, I pray that you would encourage them by this story. And I pray that in a new way today, we will live this out on a daily basis, moment by moment. And we thank you in Jesus' name.